This week on The Voice of Prophecy, How to Ride a Cloud. Welcome back to another edition of The Voice of Prophecy. I'm your host, Sean Boonstra, and right now I'm actually sitting in a tiny little closet in the basement of our new headquarters in Loveland, Colorado. And why am I sitting in a closet in the basement? Well, it's because we don't have our new recording facility finished yet. For that matter, we don't have any recording facility quite yet. But thanks to generous gifts of listeners, I have faith that I'm not going to be sitting in this closet forever. But while I am crammed in this tiny little space, we're actually reading our way through the book of Revelation. Now, obviously, if I did every show on the book of Revelation week after week after week, we'd be at it for years and years and years because there's so much depth to this book that I just can't get to the end of it. So even though we've jumped into Revelation for the last several weeks, I'll take a break from it from time to time and cover other crucial topics, and then from time to time, I'll come back to Revelation. And and I guess in doing this, I'm really trying to accomplish a couple of different things. First, I'm trying to demonstrate that you really can understand the last book of the Bible, that Revelation is not some sort of incomprehensible mystery. Secondly, over time, I'm trying to accumulate enough material that you and I end up with a very comprehensive, very detailed study of the Bible's last book. And the reason that's important to me is because it's really books like Revelation and Daniel that made a believer out of me. It was Bible prophecy that finally got me off the fence. I mean, it was prophecy that forced me to realize There's something more than human wisdom or human poetry at work in the pages of the Bible. I mean, there's no way from a human perspective, no way to explain away the astonishing content, the astonishing concepts that you find in those books. How in the world did John and Daniel manage to get everything right hundreds and hundreds of years in advance? And I'm not talking about vague or ambiguous predictions, the kind that you find with Edgar Cayce or Nostradamus. I mean, these are very specific predictions that give amazing details centuries in advance. And sometimes, as in Daniel's case, they even name names. They name these kingdoms before they exist. So what I'm hoping as we move along is that you're going to see the same thing. There's something to this. There's something in these books that you just can't explain away in human terms. Now, now, once in a while, I actually head out into the public, and I put on a month-long seminar on the book of Revelation, kind of as a public service, as a thank you from the voice of prophecy to the people who have kept us going for more than 85 years. And when I go out in that seminar, I go over the major themes of Daniel and Revelation. It's kind of a bird's-eye view. But with this series now on the radio, Reading Revelation, I'm going to slow down into low gear and we'll take a verse-by-verse approach. I suspect there will still be days when we have to look at the big overarching themes and move quickly and deal with really big concepts. In fact, that's probably going to happen quite a bit. But at the same time, on other days, like today, I want to be careful to cover the ground. We want to slow down and look at important details. So today we're going to look at Revelation 1, verse 7. But just before I dig into that verse... 
I want to back up for just a couple of minutes and tie up some loose ends from the last time we looked at Revelation, because I never got to the final statement in verse 6, where Revelation describes Jesus as the one who, quote, has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. And I guess the one thing I want to point out about that statement is just how unworthy we are to receive an honor like that. Not only is Jesus the King of Kings, not only is he the great high priest in heaven's sanctuary, he also offers to share his status, his honors, with us. Even though you and I threw away the perfect world God made, even though we bartered away our dominion over this planet to a fallen angel, Jesus offers to give it all back. According to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, not only has Jesus redeemed us through his blood, he has also given us an inheritance. Now, now honestly, given the gravity of sin, I'd be happy to slide into the kingdom of heaven and work as a busboy. But according to Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus actually elevates you and me to unimaginable heights. Here, listen to what it says in Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's kind of hard to believe, after everything we've done, that God plans to exalt us in the kingdom of heaven. In Revelation 20, it says that you and I will live and reign with Christ. Now again, I mean, I would have been happy mopping the floors in heaven, but according to the Bible, you and I will be kings and priests in the world that's coming. And pay attention carefully to Revelation 1 verse 6. I mean, it's actually written in the present tense, not the future. It says we are kings and priests right now. Because of Jesus, the deal is as good as done. I mean, you can take it to the bank. Because of the cross, God already thinks of you in those terms, king and priest. Now, now, now there's one small possible variation on the translation of this verse. I mean, if you have a Bible with marginal notes, you'll see that some manuscripts have this verse saying that Jesus made us a kingdom and priests. And even if that happens to be the better rendition of this verse, that's still exciting. I mean, you and I aren't just part of the kingdom of God. We are the kingdom of God. He's not simply letting us in. He's banking on the fact that you and I are going to be the substance of his kingdom. In God's mind, you are what makes the kingdom what it is. And that's such an important part of God's plan that he's actually planning to physically take up residence on this planet and live with us. Now, if you've never thought of that, if that's a new concept to you, you might want to take a sneak peek ahead to Revelation 21, where John says in no uncertain terms that God's plan is to set up his tabernacle in our midst and live right here with us. But we'll get to that in time, first things first. Eventually, I will get to Revelation 21, but we have a lot of ground to cover before that. For right now, what we need to understand is that the kingdom of Christ even though it's still in the future, as far as its literal establishment is concerned, that kingdom already exists in the hearts and minds of believers. It's already a reality 
in the minds of people who have decided that Jesus belongs on the throne, and we already have God's full permission to consider ourselves kings and priests. We're kings because Jesus has taken back our kingdom from the powers of darkness. He has beaten the devil as a real flesh-and-blood human being. And you and I are priests because we have direct access to the Father. The only mediator we need, according to the Scriptures, is Jesus himself. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So you and I don't need an earthly priest or a minister or a rabbi when it comes to approaching the throne of God. You are a king and priest in your own right, and you can go straight to God yourself. Now, I'm already up against a break, and it really is time today to move on to Revelation 1, verse 7. I mean, if I keep moving at this pace, we'll be studying the book of Revelation 30 years from now. I won't get all the material done. So I'm going to take a break, and as soon as we come back, we're going to go and look at Revelation 1, verse 7. And you might want to buckle your seatbelt, have your Bible open to that passage, because what we're going to look at is a real doozy of a verse in Scripture. I'll be right back. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. And it looks like I'm back from the break, so it is time to open our Bibles and dig into Revelation 1, verse 7. Just in case you're joining us a little bit late, my name is Sean Boonstra. You are listening to The Voice of Prophecy. Over the last few weeks, what we've started to do is read our way through the book of Revelation. And if you happen to miss the first few episodes, you might want to go to VOP.com and get those episodes. Better yet, go to the Android or iTunes store, look for The Voice of Prophecy, and download our new app. Because that app will give you access to just about everything we say and do here on the program. Okay, now it's time to look at Revelation 1, verse 7. And here's what it says. Now we're reading. Behold he, and of course that's a reference to Jesus, Behold he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. All right, there is a lot of information there for us to digest, so where in the world should I begin? Um, Maybe we should break this into parts and deal with the parts separately, That actually might make the most sense. So let's begin with the statement that Jesus is coming with clouds. Now, you might remember when Jesus went back to heaven in Acts chapter 1, that the disciples stood on the mountain and kept watching Jesus go up until a cloud, that's what it says in the book of Acts, a cloud received him out of their sight. Then an angel told them, that the same Jesus would come back, the same way they saw him go. So we know that a literal, physical Jesus went up to heaven, and a literal, physical Jesus will come back. They were able to see Jesus leave, and you and I will be able to see him arrive. In fact, the next statement here in verse 7 says, Every eye will see him. But what does it mean 
when it says that Jesus comes back with clouds? Well, it might just mean that he's coming in the sky and that you're going to look up to see him come and there will be clouds up there all around him. That might be all there's to this. But there is another intriguing possibility that emerges when you compare this verse to the rest of the Bible. Back in Matthew chapter 24, a chapter that a preacher friend of mine used to call the Reader's Digest Condensed Version of Revelation, in Matthew 24, Jesus says pretty much the same thing. Here's the statement in Matthew 24, verse 30. This is Jesus speaking. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So again, just like with Revelation 1, verse 7, you have the tribes of the earth, the people of the earth, mourning when they see Jesus. And it says that Jesus comes on the clouds of heaven. Now, given the fact that Jesus made a point of spelling out that he's going to come with clouds, and John repeats that detail, it probably means that we should pay attention. It probably means that comparing this verse to the rest of the Bible is going to show us a really important concept. And really, that's one of the biggest keys to understanding the book of Revelation. You have to remember that two-thirds of the material John uses, two-thirds of the language, two-thirds of the imagery, it comes from the rest of the Bible. If you really want to understand what John says in Revelation, you've got no choice. You have to read the whole Bible. That's the context. I mean, there's just no other way. Now, at the same time, you've got to be really careful that you don't try and read something into every last syllable of the book of Revelation, or you're going to end up with some really strange theology. And I have piles of letters sitting in a desk drawer that just demonstrate how bad theology can get when somebody tries to read something into every single syllable of Revelation. In this case, though, it's going to prove useful. And it's going to place this verse in the context of the rest of the Bible, and it's going to paint a very important picture. What exactly does it mean when John says that Jesus comes with clouds? Again, it might mean nothing. It might just mean that Jesus comes in the sky and you'll see him when he comes. But the way clouds are used elsewhere in the Bible shows us something really interesting. For example, take a look at Psalm 104, where it says that God makes the clouds his chariots. Now, that doesn't mean that God is like the pagan gods of ancient mythology. It doesn't mean that he literally rides around in a chariot made out of clouds. It might just be poetic language, describing God's creative power and his ownership of nature. But it also might be symbolic language for something else. I mean, compare that statement to Psalm 68, and something really interesting suddenly comes to the surface. Listen to this. This is Psalm 68, verse 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Now the Bible says that God has 20,000 chariots and thousands of thousands. In the original language, it says that God has thousands of shinon, or myriads, that he rides with. It's clearly a reference to a crowd, and probably a crowd of warriors. And that is so likely that the translators of the old King James Version just skipped a step and said that the chariots of God are thousands 
of angels. It's a picture of God coming down on Mount Sinai in a cloud, just the way the book of Exodus describes it, except that the psalmist is describing that cloud as a cloud of angels. The chariot of God might just be a cloud of angels. So in Revelation 1 verse 7, what sort of cloud does Jesus return with? It might just be a cloud of water vapor, but given the language of the rest of the Bible, it's far more likely that John is describing Jesus returning with clouds of angels, which would be perfectly consistent with the language of Jesus himself. I mean, here, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 31. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. And that statement, Jesus returning with all the angels, is completely consistent with the description of the second coming found in Revelation 19, where Jesus comes riding a horse, leading the armies of heaven. Now remember, the thousands mentioned in Psalm 68 were a reference to warriors, and that matches exactly what John says in Revelation 19. Here's Revelation 19, verse 14. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him, that's Jesus, followed him on white horses. You might remember a story from the book of Joshua where the young leader is outside the camp near the city of Jericho. And Jesus suddenly appears to him and describes himself as the commander of the Lord's army. He's telling Joshua that there's nothing to worry about. God will take care of Jericho for the children of Israel. And the message for you and I in the second coming is exactly the same. Jesus returns riding on clouds. He leads the armies of heaven back to this earth to eradicate, completely wipe out the effects of our rebellion and sin. He demolishes what we've done. He wipes out suffering and pain and sorrow and death. After waiting patiently for the human race to come back home to return their hearts to God, Jesus finally seizes his kingdom, and he makes things right. And this is such a big event that all the angels come along, all of heaven empties, which might be the reason that Revelation 8 verse 1 says that all of heaven falls silent under the seventh seal. Heaven falls silent because there's nobody there. They all come here. Every angel joins him. When Jesus comes to claim his kingdom, when he comes to claim his bride, it is such a huge event that the whole universe joins him. And I'm telling you, that's a lot of angels. There are these descriptions in Daniel and Revelation of 10,000 times 10,000 angels multiplied by further thousands, specifically in conjunction with the final judgment. And if you take those numbers literally, we're talking hundreds of millions of angels, maybe billions of angels. And even if you don't take the numbers literally, it's still describing a number too big for human comprehension. I mean, think about this. When one single angel suddenly showed up at the tomb of Jesus, it was so overwhelming that tough Roman guards actually passed out. So imagine what it would look like when all the angels of heaven suddenly light up the sky. So, what is the cloud that Jesus comes back with? Personally, I'm convinced it's a cloud of angels. 
Not only is that consistent with the other descriptions of the second coming, it's also consistent with the amazing judgment scene you find in Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man approaches His Father's throne. And it says that He approaches the throne with the clouds of heaven. Now, that might mean there are actual clouds of water vapor in the throne room of God, but I honestly doubt it. It's far more likely that this is a reference to the huge crowds of angels that are specifically described in the very same scene. But I'm telling you one thing is sure. The Bible teaches that when Jesus comes, He comes with the clouds of heaven, just like it says in Revelation 1. And when Jesus comes, He comes with all the angels, just like it says in Matthew 25. At any rate, it's going to be the most spectacular event in the history of our planet. Now, I'm going to take a short break, and when I come back, we're going to look at the rest of this verse, and we're going to ask the question, why in the world do people mourn when they see Jesus return? Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions? Like, where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness, or is there any hope for our chaotic world? Are you searching for answers to these and other of life's most challenging questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers in guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and A Second Chance at Life. You'll find answers to the things that matter the most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. And I am back from the break, and today I'm looking at Revelation 1, verse 7, which describes the second coming of Christ. And just before I stop for the break, I ask this question, why do people mourn when they see Jesus? That's what it says in Revelation 1, verse 7, all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. And it said the same thing back in Matthew 24. So, why in the world would anybody be upset when Jesus comes back? You'd think it'd be the best news on the planet. Unless, of course, your personal interests are completely at odds with the kingdom of Christ. If you are still at the center of your own universe when Jesus comes, that's going to be a problem. Because God's going to completely overhaul everything. When you take a look at the prophetic passages like Daniel chapter 2, where the kingdoms of this world are utterly crushed at the return of Jesus, and the powder of the kingdoms of this world just blows away in the wind. Well, it's pretty obvious that in order to restore this planet to the paradise it used to be, God's going to eliminate everything we built. After countless generations of self-determination, we've made it abundantly obvious as a human race that we don't know what we're doing. I mean, every few years we go back and hold an election. We hold out hopes that we're going to elect somebody that makes life better. And then a few years later, we hold another election. Why? Because we still haven't found the perfect government. You and I live in a world where just about everybody looks out for his or her own interests first. We live in a world of corruption and greed and selfishness. And in order to restore paradise, 
in order to wipe away our tears and put a permanent end to suffering, God has to replace our way of doing things. You can't just fix it. God has to replace it. And so over and over again, the Bible says that the earthly kingdoms are going to pass away and be completely replaced by the kingdom of Christ. The Son of God became a real human being, and he took back the planet that Adam gave away, and now it belongs to him. And if you're in that group described in Revelation 1 verse 6, the group that has become aligned with God's agenda, the group that God describes as kings and priests, then the second coming is wonderful news. But if you're still hanging on to sin, if you're still clinging to the human rebellion against God, if you refused to believe that God was going to come, well, then the second coming is bad news. Because now your kingdom is finished. Your ambitions are bankrupt and defeated. It's over. And you suddenly realize you have no place in God's solution. You have no place in the kingdom that's coming. And honestly, given the way that God pulled out all the stops to save us, it doesn't make a lick of sense to still be lost the day that Jesus comes. On that day, some people will see Jesus coming, and they'll know they've blown it. They suddenly realize that all the stuff in the Bible they chose to ignore was real. They suddenly realize that when God said he would put an end to human suffering, he meant it. And that would include the suffering they caused. They suddenly realize it's too late. They ignored God's repeated warnings. They ignored God's constant pleading, and now they're terrified. And you'll notice over in Revelation 6, verse 15 onward, these people aren't terrified of the lion of the tribe of Judah. No, no, no. They're terrified of a lamb, which only highlights just how senseless it is to be lost. People are terrified of a lamb. They're terrified of the one who laid down his life to save them. And when you compare it to Revelation 1, verse 7, where it says that those who pierced Jesus would see him, these are people who now realize that his blood is on their hands. Remember, Jesus specifically told the high priest that he would see the Son of Man returning on the clouds of heaven. Somehow, Caiaphas is going to see it. And at that moment, he will have to admit for real that he was wrong and Jesus is the Son of God. You and I have a choice to make. You'll notice that the people who cry for the rocks and mountains to fall on them at the end of Revelation 6 call Jesus the Lamb. It's a clear signal. They know who he is. It's not a mystery. These are people who know what Jesus did for us, and yet they rejected the cross. You know, the Bible seems to indicate that God does not hold people accountable for what they can't possibly know. And that's because God is fair. He's just. But these people, in the end, they know. The gospel has reached the whole world before Jesus comes, and these people know. Just like you and me. We know. We know who Jesus is. We know what he did. And the only question left for you and me to answer at this moment is whether or not we're going to accept the gift of Christ and be counted among the kings and priests who really don't deserve it, but have given the gift of becoming God's children and heirs to the kingdom of Christ. And honestly, when you're given that kind of a choice, it's sort of a no-brainer. There's really only one choice to make. Why wouldn't you want Jesus? Well, 
That's all the time I've got for this week. I can't believe how quickly it runs out. We'll pick up in the book of Revelation again in coming weeks. Thank you for listening. I'm Sean Boonstra. This has been The Voice of Prophecy. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions? Like, where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness? Or is there any hope for our chaotic world? Are you searching for answers to these and other of life's most challenging questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers in guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and A Second Chance at Life. You'll find answers to the things that matter the most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions.